Aloha and welcome to Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. My name is Stanley Chang, and I'm a state senator in Honolulu, Hawaii. Together with Faith Action for Community Equity, a grassroots interfaith nonprofit dedicated to addressing Hawaii's social justice challenges, we're here to understand housing more deeply and seek new, innovative solutions from all over the world to the severe housing crisis here. But many of the lessons may also apply to your community, wherever you may be. And now, on with the show. Good morning and welcome to today's edition of Our Homes Ending the Housing Crisis. We have today two guests. Our first guest is Sarah Karlinski, who has worked at SPUR since 2005 in various roles, including as sole policy director responsible for land use and housing policy in San Francisco, deputy director, and director of policy. In her current role, Sarah works on housing policy and advises the CEO on policy and organizational matters. Prior to joining SPUR, Sarah developed affordable housing throughout the Bay Area with MidPen Housing, one of the largest nonprofit developers of affordable housing in the Bay Area. And she will be followed by Christian Bevington, a senior analyst in ACOM Cities team based in San Francisco. Previously, he was based in London, working with ACOM's sustainability and resilience and city planning teams. In this role, he delivered 100 resilient cities strategies and strategic master plans for cities and regions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah and Christian, and take it away. Great. Um, okay, I'm going to share my screen. There we go. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Senator Chang, for having us. It's really exciting to get to talk to you about um, housing policy, and um, I hope that uh, what uh, we in the Bay Area are, are, are learning will be useful to you and your constituents. Um, I just wanted to start off by talking a little bit about SPUR as an organization. For those who might not be familiar, we're a, a public policy think tank. We're over 100 years old. We started in the aftermath of the 1906 earthquake, um, actually thinking about what building codes were needed in, in San Francisco post-earthquake. Um, and we work on a wide variety of different topics, um, including housing, transportation, sustainability and resilience, economic justice, um, food systems and urban agriculture and, and more. And um, one of our most recent efforts is uh, a regional strategy, um, which is uh, a project to define a 50 year vision for the region um, across all the different areas that we work. Um, and so that includes, you know, housing and transportation and sustainability um, and, and others. And uh, I am working along with uh, my colleague, colleague Christy Wong, on the housing portion of the regional strategy. And we're very lucky to get to work with Christian and AECOM on a, a particular project for the housing portion of the regional strategy, which is learning from other places. Um, when we start thinking about, okay, how do you actually solve the housing crisis? How do you actually deal with just the incredible challenges that the Bay Area faces? I mean, Bay Area has, has the highest housing costs of anywhere in the entire country, I think. Um, Hawaii is just uh, second um, in some of the urbanized areas to, to the Bay Area. 
um, it's really important to think about learning from international models. We don't have to just constrain ourselves by thinking about the, the US models. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about the Bay Area context and some of the things that we've learned. Um, and then I'm gonna turn it over to Christian and he's gonna really lead us through um, those international examples. And then we'll be able to have a, a productive conversation after that. So um, again, really excited to be here and sharing this work with you. Um, we recently uh, produced a report uh, that was focused specifically on how we got into the particular crisis that we're in and um, what are some of the initial steps and the initial thinking um, to get us out of the challenges that we're in. Um, and for anybody who's listening who's interested in, in checking out the report in full, you can go to our website, which is www.spur.org. Um, one of the biggest um, challenges, which uh, is, is it, it happens everywhere in the United States because of the way that we treat housing as a commodity, um, is that if you fail to build a sufficient amount of housing, um, it's going to drive up housing costs. And what we've seen in the Bay Area is that um, we, uh, the region did a fairly good job of um, building a, a substantial amount of housing in the 1980s. Um, but as both the cost of housing increased um, and as the uh, region rightly started to focus on curbing sprawl, the number of places where housing could be built and the challenges to, the number of places where you could build the housing decreased and the challenges to produce that housing increased. And what you see is a, is a drop in housing production over the last 20 years. At the same time, the region was adding a substantial uh, number of jobs. Um, the Senator has talked uh, to us about just the tech boom in, in Hawaii. We also, as everyone knows, have had a tech boom in the, in the Bay Area. And um, the region in the most recent tech boom added way, way, way more, more jobs than housing units. Um, and that further exacerbated uh, the imbalance in the housing market and has driven up housing costs. Um, at the same time and in an interrelated manner, the, um, the incomes in the, in the Bay Area have changed as well. Um, the region has gotten roughly 50% more, more wealthy over the period, that period of time, in part because people are being driven out by high housing costs and in part because some people are making more money as a function of the changing economy. So we've gone in the last 20 years from having a bell curve shape um, income distribution where we had a lot of people in the middle and maybe fewer on either end to one that's more of like um, a rolling hill where you have fewer people on the lower end and many more on the upper end. Um, and this uh, chart basically shows the same thing which is essentially that the, the region, while there is some uh, differences county by county, has gotten significantly wealthier. Um, this all has uh, disproportionate impacts on communities of color. Um, people of color are more likely to rent and struggle to pay for it. Um, this is not uh, just true for the Bay Area, but it's true for many other metropolitan areas. Um, so we set about trying to quantify um, what this meant in terms of, of units. And the first thing that we did is we tried to estimate the historic shortfall in housing production. Um, and what we, we found was that over the past 20 years, the region 
built roughly 42,000 units of permanently affordable subsidized housing and um, roughly uh, 300,000 units of um, above market rate um, or above median market rate housing. But actually what the region needed in order to accommodate um, all the, the people who wanted to stay in this region and grow their families here was roughly a million units of housing. So the shortfall is roughly 700,000 units. So that's just the shortfall. And then if you look into the future and you start thinking about what population growth might be over the next 50 years, um, we estimate that there's a need for uh, roughly 1.5 million housing units at all income levels. So it's not simply market rate housing. It's not simply affordable subsidized housing. It's both those categories and everything in the middle. Um, and the way we thought about this is that we thought okay, if we want to stop income inequality from getting worse, how much housing will we need to produce, keeping in mind job and population growth? Um, and that's how we derive these numbers. So adding those two together um, is roughly 2.2 million housing units. Um, there are, uh, we produce around between 20 and 25,000 housing units um, a year right now. And this, this target is more like 45,000 housing units. So it's roughly doubling um, the production and it's also roughly doubling the total number of housing units in the Bay Area. So it's a significant target, um, but it's one that we think is achievable. Um, so the, the next part of Spurs work on the regional strategy is thinking about what we ought to do about the housing crisis. We've just defined it um, in numbers, but how do we actually go about um, solving this crisis? And how do we think about it at the scale that it needs to be thought of? And that will be the subject of our um, forthcoming set of policy papers as part of the regional strategy. Um, the recommendations that we have, we, we tried to devise sort of a filter, a way to think about some of the recommendations, um, and this might be useful to you all in Hawaii as well. Um, first of all, we, we wanted to think of um, uh, solutions that really were commensurate with a 50-year vision. If we actually are going to create um, affordable housing um, and solve the affordability crisis, um, we need to think beyond the current political constraints that we have. We need to have a large scale 50 year vision. We need to focus um, not just on units, the, the number of units produced, but also people. Um, how do we house the people that are in the region right now that are experiencing overcrowding? How do we keep people in their homes? Um, it can get housing policy as many of you know, can devolve into acronyms and unit counts and it can get very dry, but each person that we're thinking about, each family that we're thinking about is, is they need a home, a place that they um, feel safe, comfortable. They're not worried about getting kicked out of. It's about housing people in their homes. Um, we also started thinking more, and Christian will really get into this in his presentation about housing as a human right. Um, Many of the countries that we admire for their housing delivery systems do not tolerate homelessness. They don't, it's not part of their social contract. And if you start thinking about housing as a human right, as a value, um, it really uh, changes the relationship um, between what government ought to be doing um, from what it's doing right now, which is a much more limited role. 
Um, at the same time, um, we recognize that housing in the United States is treated as a commodity. It's something to be bought and sold and invested in. Um, and there are actually benefits to the system as it is. Um, and one of the chief benefits is that we create a substantial amount of housing without um, public subsidy. Um, it's created on the private market without, um, and you know, the public having to created in the private market without the public having to pay for it. And so is there a way of harnessing the energy of housing as a commodity in service of treating it as a, as a right? Um, and that's, that's something that we're really interested in thinking about. Um, we wanted to think about solutions um, that work within current systems, but also push change systems. It's really, really important. And we've heard the Senator talk about changing the Overton window of possibility. And, and that's something that we, at SPUR care about as well. Um, and we thought about solutions that work together and reinforce one another. So I'm not gonna walk you through the uh, another 50 slides worth of all the recommendations, but I am gonna show you this, this last one just um, to give you a little bit of a flavor. Um, the, the three areas what we're, where we're most focused are first on treating housing as infrastructure, um, second, producing enough housing to meet the region's needs, um, and third, stabilizing um, people and neighborhoods in advance of neighborhood change. And the first um, one, treating housing as infrastructure, that's really also um, an idea that is derived in part from the work that Christian um, did at, at AECOM and looking at all of the different um, international examples where uh, the, the federal government is just much more involved in um, the production of housing. And if you start thinking of housing, you know, again, not just as something that's nice to have, but something that is essential, the way that clean water is essential, the way that electricity is essential and heating is essential. Um, we don't just sort of say, oh, well, if it gets produced, you know, great. And if it doesn't, fine. No, like the, the public sector has a strong role to play in the in the provisions of those of those goods. So really thinking about this a bit differently is going to be important. Um, in terms of producing enough housing to meet the region's needs, um, that's that's what I was talking about. It's basically doubling the um, production of housing in the in the Bay Area. And California has a series of very convoluted um, interlocking um, regulatory challenges that makes it really, really hard to produce a sufficient amount of housing, particularly in the coastal um, regions. Um, and that leads to um, racial exclusion, uh, exclusionary neighborhoods, um, it leads to high housing costs, and it leads to homelessness. So there's a lot that we need to do in this second section. And then thirdly, stabilizing people um, and neighborhoods in advance of neighborhood change. That's really about uh, enabling people to remain in their homes as change is going on. We're gonna be needing to add all this housing, but we want people to be able to, to, to benefit um, from those changes and not just simply repeat the, the mistakes of the past where so many, particularly people of color have been um, evicted in the, in the name of progress. So those are the three areas um, that SPUR is focused on. Um, if you have more questions, you know we'll be able to talk more. Um, you can also visit our website. And with that, I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna turn it over to Christian. Thank you. Let me just pull up my slides.
you see those okay, Sarah? Perfect. So I'm Christian Bevington, Senior Analyst for ACOM, and as Sarah said, worked with Spur on, on the housing report that I'm going to talk about in a little bit more detail. Um, I'm currently based in San Francisco, but as you can tell, I'm not from San Francisco, but uh, I'm loving being here and uh, I'm very excited to participate in this, in this conversation today. I wanted to reiterate some of the points that Sarah has raised because I think they're really important that it's not just San Francisco grappling with a housing affordability and accessibility crisis, though the scale here is astronomical. And even though we've seen some decreases in housing costs, there still is a huge challenge for people being able to not only access, but also stay in their homes. And I think it's, you know, one of the main contributions to that is supply challenges. And these are a problem, not only for the current population, and as Sarah, Sarah ran through the, the previous backlog or shortfalls, but also for future population growth. So how can we seek ways to not only diversify housing stock, but increase supply, decrease the cost per unit, and also speed up delivery. So the report that I worked on with uh, Sarah and, and co at Spur is from Copenhagen to Tokyo, learning from international housing systems. The cities that we focused on were Copenhagen, Berlin, Vienna, Amsterdam, Tokyo, and Singapore. These were chosen for a variety of reasons, but for the most part, they compared well to the Bay Area in terms of demographics, economic composition, or the housing market characteristics. It's important for us to acknowledge that these are products of their individual and unique political and economic systems, and to recognize that that is not something that you could wholesale lift from where they are and apply anywhere in the world. But they do offer exciting and noteworthy examples of how to deliver housing and to do it in a way that could inform future policy, not just in the Bay Area, as, as we were targeting with this piece, but also more broadly, and, and as per the conversation today in Hawaii. So when we were looking at these cities, although they're very different, we did recognize that there were some commonalities that carried through all six. So strong national government leadership in housing provision so in every example, the central government plays a key role and a strong role in delivering housing through funding, financing, and also the regulation. It's a commitment that's ongoing and reflects a societal value that everyone should have a home and it's not just a commodity that should be traded. And to that point, housing as a basic social and economic infrastructure, so just like educational healthcare, Many of these cities recognize that it's a necessary element for basic economic, social, and public health infrastructure and should not only be traded as a commodity. So some high levels lessons learned from, from all of the case studies, and then I'll dive into a little bit more detail to Tokyo and Singapore. But for start, starters, the active city and regional infrastructure financing and development entities as uh, most commonly seen in Copenhagen and Tokyo in particular, they act alongside and partner with private developers, nonprofits, cooperatives to develop infrastructure, but also to leverage publicly or government owned land to finance and develop new housing. They have streamlined planning and regulatory approval processes for housing. So compared to the US and, and even the UK, in some examples, 
they have much less local control and fewer conditional approval processes in place, which enables developers to act more freely and in a more agile way. So in particular in Tokyo, landowners and developers enjoy relatively few zoning regulations and much more freedom to develop urban parcels using housing typologies that would be supported by the market. As mentioned, the governments have a greater involvement in land markets. So many of these cities play a key role in acquiring land or regulating the transactions, which helps them to mitigate the impacts that land market speculation can have on housing prices. There are many robust tenant protections in the cities that we looked at. So whether that be a rent price index like they have in Berlin or just greater and broader tenant rights and protections like in Amsterdam, these cities for the most part recognize the value that renting and renters have and that they play a critical role in their housing markets and should be supported as such. There's also a greater nonprofit and cooperative leadership present in these cities. So compared to many places across the US, a greater percentage of the housing stock in the cities that we looked at are actually under the management or ownership of nonprofit organizations or cooperatives, either as independent entities or that are linked to local governments. And I think this is something that if we were gonna consider um, to roll out across the US and maybe in Hawaii, that we would need greater financial support from the state from regional and also local agencies to ensure, to ensure that this can happen. Before I move on to the slightly more detailed look at Tokyo and Singapore, I just wanted to pause for a second and think about the situation we have found ourselves in over the last few months and that it's demonstrated that political boundaries hold little value when thinking about public health or economic challenges. And in actual fact, the, the greatest success can be seen when those jurisdictions work together for a long-term joint vision and goal. So how do we apply that to the housing market? And how do we ensure that every housing stakeholder, whether they be a homeowner, renter, developer, investor, is catered for so that we can emerge from the crisis over the last nine months and wherever, however long it's gonna to take to, to come through with a much stronger housing market that actually supports everybody. So Tokyo. Here's some lessons that we learned specifically from Tokyo that would be of interest to the US market. So planning rules have been relaxed. The city is encouraged development by simplifying zoning rules and increasing density allowances, which essentially gives all landowners the ability or near total freedom to develop as they see fit, integrating multiple different uses on a single site or as one that was maybe traditionally or previously used for residential or commercial, this isn't just for large developers, but anyone who owns land and can secure the necessary funding and financing to actually deliver the project has that same freedom. Decision-making is top-down. So planning decisions are made at a national level, which allows them to be strategic and forward-thinking. It's worth acknowledging at this point that this sometimes causes friction between more local governments and the national government. So it's not a perfect solution. The government provides financing and when I say this I mean they offer a large a large range of options that are low interest long term 
mortgages that allow many people to access the home ownership market and do so without the fear that in five years or 10 years, the interest rates will hike up and therefore not be able to afford their mortgage repayments. So it gives you a sense of security. They also operate a large scale housing and infrastructure agency, which is government backed, which is there to enable and stimulate development and also ensures that the national government has a stake in what is happening and also a stake in, to ensure that the, the developments are a success. The agency can not only support developers to achieve this, but they can also be the developers themselves, especially for projects that require a longer term delivery and are a little bit more strategic. And as Sarah mentioned, housing is, is a home, not a commodity. So in Japan, they have a relatively short life expectancy for housing units, which is reinforced by the culture and the expectation that seismic retrofitting and technologies will improve over time and they want to have that integrated in the homes that people live in. But it also means that housing units can have nearly no value by the time that they reach the end of their life expectancy. They're not seen as something that people buy to generate wealth. They are seen as somewhere to live and raise a family. And then finally, I'll just run through some lessons learned from Singapore, which is obviously very different <laughs> in terms of its governance structure, but the city owns most of the land. So being a majority landowner essentially allows them to have greater control over the resource. They're also able to they were also able, sorry, to purchase additional land that they needed for developments at the existing land values, therefore not paying the premiums that are often associated with, a, with land assembly when there is permission for new development or density has been increased. Which essentially means Singapore can run an extensive construction program without having that issue of land assembly and without having to be too concerned with the risk that can sometimes bring to the table. They have strict controls on land sales and the price of land. So they're able to regulate and prevent local, uh, individual landowners from benefiting from land value increases that may have been generated by public spending. So that combined with their ability to sell land and control the costs also means that there is reduced development costs compared to what we might experience in the US. They also have an extensive house building program and an agency that's set up to deliver that. They take a strategic and long-term view to housing delivery, coupled with significant investment from the state, which essentially means they now have a well-accessed and comprehensive house, housing ownership scheme where everyone is part of that system. Tied to that is a tax and pension system that is very heavily focused towards home ownership. So everyone is required to make a personal contribution to this scheme, which they will then be able to access when they want to purchase a home. But also employers make contributions to that scheme. So indirectly, they're supporting their own employees from being able to access homes that are stable and their own. And then finally, something that underpins most of their ability to do this is the fact that the government structure is relatively flat. So it's a city state. They do not have to worry about sometimes long 
drawn out negotiations or agreements between various levels of government to be able to do something that they want to do within Singapore, which has enabled them to be relatively nimble and also be able to respond to change as it comes up. So that's it from my run through and my presentation. I will stop sharing my screen now and look forward to having a conversation with you. Well, thank you so much, Sarah and Christian for those excellent PowerPoint presentations. Um, we will try to get to as many questions from the audience as possible that are entered into the Q&A section or the chat. Um, to kick things off, we, um, we see in both the Bay Area and in Hawaii a very strong strain of anti-development sentiment, sometimes called nimbyism or not in my backyard. And clearly these jurisdictions in the study such as Singapore, Tokyo, and the European jurisdictions that are providing enough housing to meet demand um, have to have some way of dealing with this. What role does that anti-development sentiment play in these other jurisdictions? I can, I can take that one first there if you, unless you have anything to add afterwards. <laughs> um, I think it's important to, to think and remember that NIMBYism does happen everywhere. It's not unique to the United States. And to really reiterate the point that the examples that we explored, they are not perfect. And there are issues that they are themselves tackling. So we are not here to present them as the be all and end all, and they will solve everyone's problems and they are perfect. So they do themselves have the issue of NIMBYism. But I think there's something to think about in terms of how the objections from those not wanting development are manifested and how much power and weight that they are given in the decision-making process and how they actually have control to divert or stall development. So they, in many other places, are not given that same weight that we have here. But tied to that point is that it's often recognized, and this is the case in Vienna, for example, that the development of new housing does benefit everybody. And for many people, regardless of wealth or income, they have themselves benefited from the housing system that exists there. So they understand that this isn't something that should be looked on with fear or with apprehension, but it's for that greater good. And it ties to the point that Sarah said earlier about it being a, a social contract that everyone has almost signed up for. I, just, I wanted to just add one thing um, just for the US context and um, Christian will be answering the international questions and I'll probably answer the, the local ones. Um, but um, I don't know about Hawaii's um, land use framework, but in California, there's just an extremely strong constitutionally enshrined um, uh, home rule framework. And basically what that means is that each local jurisdiction has almost total authority over what gets um, zoned for and built in that local jurisdiction. Um, and uh, because of that, um, and because of the fact that local officials are elected locally, and then they're called upon to make determinations about what gets built within local boundaries. They are very, very, very sensitive to um, local concerns, local upsets, um, 
local political pressure. Um, and it takes a, a certain amount of um, political courage and um, politi political braveness to stand up in support of housing in many local jurisdictions um, in, the, in the Bay Area. Um, and that's sort of true for many parts of the United States that the, that the local government really does have a lot of power over what gets built um, locally. And so, um, you know, that creates a collective action problem where if each jurisdiction is sort of saying, maybe we're filled up, maybe we've, we've added enough housing, um, but the, the regional supply and demand imbalance continues, um, the problem can't be solved because like the, the level of government that you're trying to solve it at is the sort of the wrong level of government. Um, the other point that I just want to uh, throw in there is that there's um, there people can be concerned about housing for very, very different reasons. Um, we've got many wealthy jurisdictions throughout the Bay Area that have um, been practicing exclusionary zoning for a long period of time. Um, and anytime you're talking even about you know, duplexes or fourplexes, there's a, a wave of, of concern and outrage because those people might be coming. Um, that's sort of one set of NIMBY fears and anxiety. And then there's a, another set that's around, um, you know, every time there's new market rate housing in my community, it, it signifies that perhaps I'm not welcome. Um, and those are sort of anti-displacement um, and anti-gentrification concerns um, that, um, you know, for me, I'm much more sympathetic to, to those concerns and that they require a different suite of policy interventions to, um, to deal with. Uh, so a lot of the case studies that Christian has, has been talking about, just the level, the level of government that, that is solving the problem is, a, in my mind, perhaps a more beneficial level of government to be addressing the, the problem at. Um, and our particular American way of, of doing things where so much is devolved to the smallest level of government, you know, there are some benefits to that, but there are many, many drawbacks um, from a land use perspective. You identified one of the challenges that California has been facing, an effort at the statewide level to try to increase density, which has been resisted by local level jurisdictions. Um, and that's maybe one thing that might be very difficult to implement uh, from the Tokyo example. In your opinion, and we'll start with Sarah, what are the lowest hanging fruit among the specific policies in these foreign jurisdictions that might be easier to achieve in an American jurisdiction like California or like Hawaii? Well, I don't know which ones are the lowest hanging fruit, but you know, one thing that people can often agree on, although perhaps not um, right now, because in California, we just had a tax reform measure that would have generated a lot of money, just go down in flames, Prop 15, which is a, a bummer. But um, just looking at the ways that, um, different countries finance affordable housing, um, where they derive those dollars from um, is, is very interesting and might have more of a, a space in a Biden administration than the current administration. Um, I think, you know, we all know that the mortgage um, interest deduction on people's taxes is, um, it's, it's 
the I think it's the largest federal housing program um, in the entire country. It's like I think between like 30 and 40 billion dollars are expended on the mortgage interest deduction. Um, whereas a, a place like um, Copenhagen, every person who needs a um, rental voucher is given one. Um, and so we subsidize home ownership in the United States. And there are a lot of reasons that that we do that. But if you look at some other places, the way that they're, they spend their federal dollars on housing, it's about um, helping uh, low-income renters basically stay housed. Um, I don't know if that's lowest hanging fruit. I probably wouldn't say that, but I think it's just a really important lesson, at least in my mind, just the role of the federal government in, in financing um, housing and what, what they focus on. Because the, the other point that I think is really important is that in the US, homeownership is used as a wealth building tool. Like that's, that's how we build wealth and that's how intergenerational wealth is, is transferred largely is through homeownership. But if you live in another place where there's a strong social service net, um, you know, where you don't have to like retire off your house or if, you know, you're, you get, have a medical concern, you don't go bankrupt because there's universal healthcare. <laughs> um, it's just like a completely different um, framework. And so I think there might be just some lessons from that alone, that contrast alone that um, would translate um, in the United States. I, I would add to that, and I, I think you know, that acknowledgement that, they, that these housing systems sit in a context of very unique, broader, broader stroke and broader context, like they, they, they are the product of very specific situations. <laughs> and that's one of the challenges when we talk about low hanging fruit, and I, I think Sarah, you're right, and one of the things I wanted to build off was the, the financing side of things. And when you're talking about creating a fund or you know, potentially at city or county or regional or state level, it's thinking about that fund as something that's revolving. So many of the other cities that we looked at in this report had it geared up to basically be a one-time investment that then once they can make profit off of that or they can leverage the increase in land values, that money is reinvested back into the same fund, which is then a continuation of the benefits that that first pot of money can bring to the table. I also think it's not a policy as such, but the, the approach to community engagement and involvement, I think is really important to acknowledge. And I think some of the issues in this ties to the, the NIMBYism problem is that communities feel like this development is happening to them rather than it happening with them and then being at the table to actually express their concerns and what they would like to get out of the, the situation. And I think having a much more conscious effort to think about that would be not policy low-hanging fruit, but I think something that would help the development process move along much more quickly and effectively. Well, thank you so much. Um, you've both mentioned this balance between housing as a public service, as necessary infrastructure, versus housing as an investment, as a wealth building tool. Are there any jurisdictions that get that balance right? It's a great question. <laughs> I think there's, in the, 
there's no one that one system that I think is perfect, but I think there are some that are thinking about the investment sector as still being an important part of housing delivery, but the expectation of what is being received for that investment is very different. So when you look at places like Vienna and Copenhagen, there are still private sector developers that are operating in those cities, but the expectation isn't that within five years they will make X percent. It's we are investing in this, it will be a much slower return and maybe a lower level of return, but over that long period. And it's it's a slightly different approach to what it means to invest in housing and what character that takes. And again, because of the strength of the city provided housing, the I guess the scope for investment in those places is much more limited than you would find in places like San Francisco, New York, or Honolulu, for example. Like it, there's, there's less of an opportunity for someone to come in and develop one piece of land and make a large sum of money because it's so heavily controlled. So I think it's, it's that expectation and what we think of as investment is what is different and needs to change. Yeah, and I would, um, you know, I have read a bunch about Copenhagen. I'm not personally um, as familiar uh, with it, but what I've read, I, I do admire the system that they have. And, um, you know, just adding to what um, Christian just mentioned, the idea of there's so much risk built in to the existing um, housing delivery system in the United States. There's the risk that your um, project, you know, might not get built in the time frame that you're hoping for. There's um, risk that your investor might drop out. There's there's all these different layers of, of risk. Um, and so the returns have to be commensurate with the risk that goes into the project. And that to me is just like wasted money. Um, it's just wasted money that, uh, that doesn't need to be part of the system that we're building. And so I admire the Copenhagen system for for just squeezing a bunch of the risk out of the out of the process um, and then plowing you know like the the return the the basically the the funding that's available the, the way that they think about it is just much more reasonable in my mind. Sarah, we have a specific question about Spur's estimate of the 700,000 or 699,000 um, housing unit backlog. How was that estimate calculated and how would we apply that to other jurisdictions such as Hawaii? Yeah. Um, well, in the report that I showed at the beginning, how to create an affordable Bay Area, um, we have for those who really want to do a deep dive on this, there is a technical appendix at the end. So if you really want to wonk out, you can look at that. But the, the short answer to that question is we basically looked at the income distribution as it was in um, basically 20 years ago. And we added a population growth factor. And then we thought about, okay, if we, if we wanted to have stopped in an income inequality from shifting as radically as it did, um, how much housing will be needed to have produced in order to prevent that from happening. Um, and that's how we derive the calculation. 
Well, thank you. We'll we'll take a look at that. Um, in the meantime, as we all know, the Bay Area is a world leader in the tech boom. It's been the envy of many jurisdictions around the world for that. And in Hawaii, there's been a lot of discussion over the past several years, and especially now during the pandemic, about attracting high-paying tech jobs. At the same time in Hawaii, there's a fear that an influx of tech employees that are well-paid will destabilize the housing sector and the fabric of the community generally. Now, San Francisco and the Bay Area have been dealing with this question for decades now. Is it possible? Um, is there discussion in the Bay Area about focusing a tech sector that relies on local talent and workforce rather than so heavily on imported workforce and talent? Yeah, that's a really um, great question. I'm not like a workforce um, expert, so I can't I can't really answer it on the on the workforce side. Although, of course, I think trying to connect um, existing residents to the tech economy is really important, and I'm I'm certain that there are people who spend all their days thinking about that. Um, on the on the housing side, you know, I, I think it's a not unreasonable fear to worry about what happens if you radically grow your your job base um, without uh, commensurately growing your your housing um, supply. I mean, we've seen that in the Bay Area. Um, but one answer to that is to find ways to grow your housing supply. Um, and one of the great, I think, tragedies of the of the Bay Area is that there are tech companies who have wanted to build a crap ton of housing on their own campuses and have been prevented from doing so um, by local government um, concerned about this or that. There's a really amazing article um, by a woman named Kim Mai Cutler, uh, who is on Spurs board. So full, full disclosure for that. But she wrote this amazing article for TechCrunch, I want to say like 10 years ago, called um, uh, uh, Burrowing Owls and Barfing Anarchists. And it was all about this, uh, this entire topic of um, basically Google wanted to build a whole bunch of housing on its campus. And then um, some new newly minted environmentalists came out and said, oh, but they're burrowing owls. You can't do that. And at the same time, there are all these tech workers moving to San Francisco and taking buses and then anarchists trying to stop the tech buses and like barfing in front, like literally making themselves like vomit for revenge in front of these tech buses. Um, and like, what a hot mess of a situation. Um, and the two are completely intertwined. The um, inability of tech companies to use their campuses for housing production as as well as job production and just this you know pressure on the on the San Francisco housing market. So I think it is really, really possible to have a prosperous economy and a well-functioning housing market. Um, but you need to you need to kind of plan for both of them. Just want to add to that the the campus conversation. I think is super interesting because if you think the location of many of the Bay Area tech campuses, which are huge land area sites with huge amounts of parking, if they had housing on site or maybe were located in a slightly different place, would not require that land suck by any extent of the imagination. 
And also when we're thinking about housing provision, it's not just providing any housing, it's thinking about what type of housing would a tech worker want? Where would they wanna be located? So we're not looking to provide millions of single family homes, but maybe it's ensuring that the single tech workers from other parts of the US or the world are able to rent an apartment without pushing out existing communities that may also want to rent those apartments. And what, what, what configuration of that would look like and how to integrate those new people into communities so it's not a hard barrier between the two, which I think I'm, I'm a transplant from somewhere else in the Bay Area, so I'm, I suppose I'm just as much guilty of this, but um, I think it's thinking about that and, and that typology and the mix of typology that's also really important. So speaking of the accommodation of different types of populations, such as on the one hand, well-paid tech workers, and on the other hand, local people who have may who may have lived in the area for jurisdiction uh, for generations, but don't make the big tech bucks. I was interested to observe that many of these jurisdictions, not just Singapore and not just Vienna, actually don't have income restrictions on their public housing, on their very widespread public housing programs. Could you talk about the role of income restrictions or no income restrictions in these jurisdictions and how that creates buy-in for a greater slice of the population? I think the in the examples of places like Amsterdam or and others like that, where there's less of a focus on the income level, it's demonstrating that everyone has access to this housing and it's housing that shouldn't be seen as a secondary choice or your kind of B plan, that housing is for everyone. And if you're accessing it and it's provided by the city, then it's high quality and it's something you would actively want. Tied to that is the fact that they are providing so much of that housing that where they don't have income restrictions on who can apply, you're not pushing out people who need it more. And it's also worth thinking that they often have scoring systems allocated to that. So if there is a wait list, there's often rankings that are added to it. So it's not just a free for all there, you know, there are processes to make sure that lower income people do have access. Um, you know, I would just say, you know, and we talked about this in our pre-call a little bit there, what you're talking about is the difference between uh, universal programs and, and targeted programs. And there are, pros and cons to each. Um, the main pro for a universal program, um, which, you, which you brought up, which is absolutely true, is that you just have more buy-in. You know, if you have more, a greater um, preponderance of the population who gets to benefit from a particular program, um, it's going to be harder to chip away at that program as, you know, as we see with, with Medicare and some of these other incredibly popular federal level programs that benefit um, the, the entire population based on just on age and not on income. Um, the problem is when there's sort of a finite resource and you need to prioritize who gets it, um, that you, you'd want potentially to prioritize those who need it the, the most if it's, if it's restricted. So I think it just depends you know, it really depends on the on the circumstances um, which you would try. Um, one example that we think about 
in San Francisco, Cisco is um, rent control, um, which is not means tested. It's just based on, you know, who's rented the apartment and for how long. And people really um, see very different things um, in the rent control story. And there's not a lot of um, evidence that that I've seen sort of one way or the other. But there's sort of one set of people who see um, what I'm just going to call a Carrie Bradshaw story of you know somebody who's uh, basically well off and just spending all of their money on shoes, but yet they live in a rent control uh, apartment and why should she get to benefit? Um, and there are others who say, you know, this is what stabilizes housing for the lowest income people. So you can't take it away. Um, but because so many different kinds of people benefit from rent control in San Francisco, um, it, you know, it's unlikely that will be doing away with it anytime soon. Um, I mean, I think you could argue, oh, you know, you're locking in a chunk of the housing stock and, you, you know, you can't um, unlock it and people have like perverse incentives. But um, on the other hand, it does protect a lot of people in a highly constrained housing market. So it doesn't really answer your question exactly, but I, I would say it's just very, there are pros and cons to both. A number of the jurisdictions that you talked about did attempt to fill the entire need for low-income people needing housing. Um, you mentioned that, for instance, Copenhagen actually gives housing vouchers to everyone who needs them. Um, and Vienna benefits from an income tax of about 1% that is further supplemented by the state government to pay for housing. Have there been efforts, have, uh, have you folks been um, leading efforts to increase um, taxpayer subsidies for low-income housing um, to, for example, provide enough Section 8 vouchers to all who need them, given that current Section 8 vouchers are only estimated to be about one-fifth of the demand? Yeah, so Spur, because we're... Um... Uh, a local and regional entity, we don't do a ton of advocacy at the federal level. And, and the federal level would really be where you need to increase the um, federal voucher program. Um, that being said, we, we have advocated for um, a, a wide variety of different um, resource types for affordable housing. So um, we've actually, um, former CEO of SPUR, was uh, co-headed um, numerous bond campaigns at the local level for affordable housing funding. And San Francisco has been very successful in passing bond measures to fund affordable housing and um, set-asides to fund affordable housing. Um, I think in the California context, I mean, our, our tax system is so messed up. I don't know about Hawaii's, but um, our property tax system was locked in in the late 70s. Um, uh, during a taxpayer revolt, uh, we have something called Prop 13, which um, basically limits um, property taxes. Uh, both the, the assessment is based on the, the value of the home at the time of purchase. So if you purchased your home in 1982 at like, you know, for $120,000, but now it's worth 2 million, you're assessed at the, at the $120,000 range. And then it further caps the percentage on um, how much um, can be charged in property taxes to 
1% and then there's, you know, there's like a little increase over time on the, on the assessed value. But all of that to say that's for both residential and commercial. And there was just a measure that um, Spur did endorse um, called Prop 15 that recently failed at the ballot that would have um, reassessed commercial properties um, at their market value. Um, and that would have been an, an enormous set of resources for the state. Um, presumably some of those mo that money also could have gone um, depending on you know, the actions of the legislature at budget time for affordable housing um, and that just lost. Um, so there's lots that California could do um, particularly with its property tax funding system to make it make affordable housing funding more viable um, and Spur would be supportive of those efforts. All right, our time is short and unfortunately we'll have to wrap it up with maybe these last two questions in one. Um, a question from the Board of Realtors in our audience. We've seen that with the pandemic, rents in high density neighborhoods in the Bay Area have actually been dropping and that there's been a much higher demand for detached single family homes, even if they're located relatively far from San Francisco. As we all know, Singapore, Tokyo, and most of the models that are in this report are based on high density housing. Is there a risk that with a pandemic that that's no longer the type of housing that is demanded? Um, and then we'll go with a closing second question is if, um, you had the magic power to implement one or just a, a handful, a suite of policies to actually end the housing shortage from you know, wherever in the world they might be borrowed, um, what would you use your magic wand to enact? Ooh, I love those questions. Um, first, I just want to start, I want to give a shout out to Kevin Wilcock, who's in the audience and um, who used to work uh, at David Baker and Partners. And I worked with him on a, a number of projects, including one on affordability by design. So hi, Kevin, it's so nice to see your name. He lives in Hawaii now. Um, okay, so I'm just going to take the first question about um, demand for um, single family housing types. Um, I We definitely have seen that, um, that trend is exactly right from that particular questioner. Um, my feeling is that um, that will be, uh, you know, as the pandemic um, hopefully mercifully will uh, come to its conclusion sometime, I don't know when, but you know, in the next year or two, I think you will see a return back to the fundamentals of cities as being places that are valued and places that are that people are, are interested in. I'm I'm the long term damage I'm most concerned about is to transit funding and to the capacity of transit systems which have taken such an enormous hit during this period. Um, in the Bay Area context, I think the the bigger change, the more long term and lasting change will actually not be from the pandemic, but from um, climate change. I think that just the um, series of fires that we've had um, and the and the smoke and just the the unlivability that um, that comes from um, this just um, incredible challenge that our state has to face um, that has uh, I think the potential to have a more um, kind of lasting damage um, to our um, economy and and housing market um, on the magic wand piece. Um, 
I, I guess I would do a couple things. One is I would have the federal government play a much stronger long-term role in affordable housing provision um, in um, just fully funding a whole, a whole suite of um, different federal programs um, designed to, to build uh, affordable housing. Um, secondly, I'd love to see single family zoning just get outlawed everywhere. Um, I think that uh, building and encouraging duplexes and fourplexes and sixplexes throughout um, was really um, critical. And then the state of California, I'd love to see um, just land use decisions. Um, I, I think local governments, it's really important that local governments get to choose kind of where housing goes to a certain extent and what it looks like, but how much housing gets built and um, in, uh, you know, does it get built closer to transit or in a different distribution? I think that the state should have a much stronger um, role in some, in some of answering some of those questions. So I'll stop there. I, I am a proponent for density <laughs> and a density that's delivered well, to clarify. <laughs> Um, but I would hate to see the pandemic result in a flurry of urban sprawl or, or a push to single family homes spread out across our natural environments. And I think it's important for everyone to, you know, as we're, as we're grappling with this challenge, look to examples like Hong Kong that although, you know, we are all dealing with second, third, fourth waves is how they're tackling it and that the approaches to the pandemic and the impacts that it have aren't necessarily tied to density. It's the house and the community processes that are in place to make sure that everyone stays safe. So hopefully people will return to our cities and they will become the thriving places that they were before. Because I'm just going to the office, which I never thought I would ever say, but I do. <laughs> and then finally, if I was, if I had a magic wand and it's tied to what Sarah said, I think it's that greater involvement by government, whether that be city or, or a higher level to deliver housing and to really leverage the assets that they have and to make the most of their ability to assemble land and to set a direction that really sets a precedent and best practice for the private sector and others to follow and to be that beacon that this, is, this can be achieved and it can be achieved well. And I think having the confidence and the, the courage to do that would be, would be really amazing to see. Well, I wanted to thank our two presenters, Sarah and Christian, on behalf of our audience here on Our Homes. That's all the time that we have today. But we are pleased to be bringing, in two weeks' time, another great webinar. And we hope that you'll be back to join us then. Thank you again, Christian and Sarah. And thank you for bringing your time and your talents to addressing the housing crisis here in Hawaii and around the world. Thank you so much. It was really fun to speak with you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Our Homes, Ending the Housing Crisis. On behalf of Faith Action for Community Equity and me, Stanley Chang, thank you for being part of the solution to this crisis. <laughs>